Amen. Good morning, church. Happy Easter. It's great to see you. He's risen. Amen. Amen. We're so glad you're here. Um, if I have not had the pleasure of meeting you, uh, my name's Parker Richardson, and I serve as the campus pastor here at High Point Carterville. And uh, we're so thrilled that you joined us. If you've got your Bible and want to open it up to Luke chapter 24, uh, Luke 24 is where we're going to read this morning. And then uh, if you don't have your Bible or a tablet or anything like that, it'll be on the screen for you. Um, but before we dive into that, uh, I just want to tell you a little bit about us. Uh, for truth and advertising's sake, uh, we are about one name and one name only. And it is not mine. It's not High Points. It's the name of Jesus. Uh, he is the only thing we're selling around here. Um, so the more you hang out with us, the more you get to know us, the more you'll realize that we are about him and we love him and we serve him, we honor him. And uh, we're excited to dive into God's Word together. So uh, I'm going to ask you, if you don't mind, uh, whether you have your Bible or not, if you don't mind standing as we read God's Word together. And let me tell you why we do this. We don't do this because we want to be high church or to be old-fashioned or to be weird. Um, we all need a physical reminder um, that this isn't just any other book. Uh, that's why we do this. Uh, not to be weird, but because we are reminding ourselves that we don't um, move and shape our um, this book to conform to our lives. In fact, we do the opposite. We move and shape and change our lives to conform to what this book says, um, that it's the authority in our lives because it's God's very word. Um, so I'm gonna read Luke 24, and I'm actually gonna pick up um, a little bit after what Reggie and the team let, uh, read to us um, on Resurrection Sunday in verse 13. It says this, that very day two of them were going to a village named Emmaus. Now that very day is the day that Jesus rose. Um, Two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things had happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen visions of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, Jesus speaking, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together as we begin. Lord, we love you. God, we ask that you would meet with us, that you would teach us. Um, Father, as we look at you in the scriptures, as we begin with Moses and move our way through the prophets, God, we ask that you would reveal yourself to us, God, that you would remove the scales from our eyes, help us to see that this book is the story of you and what you've come to do in our place. In Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Now, I love a good story. Um, anybody read or seen any good stories lately? Um, they seem like they're few and far between these days. Uh, when I look back at my childhood, I can remember um, two stories that we watched via movie um, that I just, dear memories of ours. One of the things we loved to do as children was uh, my dad would let us, you know, stay up late past bedtime, take us to, to Huey's or something, and then take us to a late movie. And uh, two very fond memories of when he took us to Remember the Titans. Anybody ever seen that great story, right? I think I was nine years old when that came out. So we went and went, I don't even think there was a Carville Malco at the time. We went to Forest Hill and uh, saw Remember the Titans and stayed up way too late. And then the other one was The Count of Monte Cristo. Anybody in here ever seen The Count of Monte Cristo? It's, it's based off a book. It's an incredible, I didn't read the book. Uh, I didn't know it was based off a book, but the movie is incredible. Um, so your homework assignment today is to go and research and watch uh, The Count of Monte Cristo. It's incredible. But I tell you that story because we all love stories. Uh, we communicate 
lots of information through story. You probably remember songs through story. Um, we love a good story. And this morning, what we're going to do is we are going to look at the story of the scriptures. And we are going to see, as Jesus said, his last statement in this passage that we just read. And if you wanna know how that passage ends, um, Jesus eventually reveals himself to those two men. They get to Jerusalem, they're having bread, and then suddenly they just see it and they see that it's Jesus and he disappears. And they go and run, they realize that they've seen the risen Jesus, they run into town, they find the disciples and they say, we've seen him too. And it's this beautiful story. But Jesus says something really fascinating there. He says, beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he interpreted to them the things in all the scriptures concerning who? Concerning himself. So Jesus is telling them that all of the Bible is about him. He's telling them that the story of the scriptures is pointing to him. And what's interesting about this is some of you are like, yeah, I get that. Like the New Testament, all about Jesus. They're all talking about Jesus. The gospels are about Jesus. But what's so fascinating about the statement is Jesus isn't talking specifically about the New Testament. We know the New Testament is about Jesus. It is pointing back to what he's done and who he is and his teachings and his actions and all of those things. But Jesus specifically in this passage says Moses and the prophets. He's talking about the Old Testament. The New Testament wasn't written when Jesus said these words. He was living it out. So he says, beginning with Moses and the prophets, the entire Old Testament. Moses is the first five books of Moses or the Pentateuch. You may have heard that name before. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. All in there. He's talking about those books and he's talking about the rest of the Old Testament, the prophetical writings. Jesus says that all of those were pointing to him. And some of you, that may be where your hangup is. You're like, hey, I get Easter, I get Jesus. Like if somebody could come to earth and die and rise back from the dead, like we should probably listen to him and you know, view him as important and those kind of things, like probably kind of a big deal. But when I pick up my Bible and I read the Old Testament, I don't know what's going on. I don't get it. I get confused. I don't, how am I supposed to know God by these Old Testament stories? Most of us, if we've grown up in church, you've probably just been taught these isolated stories throughout the Old Testament. And you're like, I don't see it. I don't know what's going on. So this morning, what we're going to do is we are going to do a flyover of the story of the Old Testament so that you can see how all of the Old Testament is anticipating and pointing to and showing and exposing our need for someone to come and do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And we're gonna walk through it together. So I'm gonna give you some kind of the rules of the engagement here. Uh, you'll see the board behind me. Um, everything that I say will be, uh, not be included on the board. So if you're like, I can't see the board very well, that's totally fine. It's just gonna be a few bits and pieces of some things that I say for visual aid that will be on the board and two, I would ask you um, to not take notes during this sermon. Um, and I'll explain it. Some of you are like, man, we picked the best church to go to on Easter Sunday. Like the pastor's telling me not to take notes. Like bring on the mimosas. Let's do this thing, right? Um, we're glad you're here. And I, I don't say, I don't ask you not to take notes because I think that what I have to say is like above your pay grade or anything like that. I'm only asking, I'm humbly asking you not to do this because I don't want you to get caught up in writing down a verse or something and miss where we're going, miss the story. Because I'm asking you not to take notes because of the speed that we're moving. Does that make sense? Um, I want you to get the story as a whole and not get lost in a detail and miss what God is doing throughout the story. So if you want the notes, I've got them on a PDF. I'll text them to you before you leave, okay? So for you type A people that are like gonna just, you know, cringe at the fact that you're not writing something down, uh, rest assured, come see me. I'll be at Next Steps after the service. I'll give you the notes for free. Um, sound good? Awesome. So what we're gonna do is we are going to literally fly over the Old Testament and show how all of this was pointing to Jesus, that the entire Bible is one story about one name written by one author who is God himself, and points to Jesus. So I'm gonna start with uh, just kind of a little timeline here. There's my messy arrow here and here. This is eternity past and eternity future. Um, you know that we believe um, that God is eternal, that God is Trinitarian, that he is one God and three persons, that Father, Son, and Spirit have all eternally existed for all of time. Before there was time, God existed. 
And we believe that about the Father, but I love in John's gospel, um, in the gospel of John, he opens with, and if you look at Genesis 1, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John opens his gospel in John 1, and he plays on that same phrase. And he says, in the beginning was the word. And he's talking about how Jesus is eternally God. He has always existed. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And by Jesus, all things were made. Paul says the same thing in Colossians 1, that by him, all things were made. And he's the one that holds it all together. But God has eternally existed in three persons. Genesis 1, we see the spirit of God hovering over the waters, creating things as God speaks those things into existence. But God creates creation in Genesis chapter 1. Everything you and I love about the earth and the world enters in Genesis 1. We see creation where God speaks and the heavens and the earth are created. He says, let there be light and there's light. He creates man and woman. He creates the birds, the skies, your favorite sunsets, the beaches, the mountains, all of those things. God creates those in Genesis chapter one. It takes him six days, not because he was limited, but because that's the way he decided to do it to kind of establish our rhythms of seven days. And on the seventh day, God rested, not because he needed to, but because he decided to. And he was establishing a rhythm for us. But Genesis 1 is creation. Genesis chapter 2, Moses, who's the writer, zooms in on the fact that God is creating man and woman. And he tells us the story how God made human beings, you and I, in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. That you and I were created in the image of God. And you're not an accident. And God hand forms Adam from the dust of the ground. And God comes to Adam and he gives Adam this incredible um, responsibility to name the animals and to find a, a helpmate for Adam, which is kind of weird that God's like parading the animals through in front of Adam. And he's like, this is a squirrel and not my mate. And this is a hippo and not, you know, right? Like, but he's naming the animals and he's looking for a mate. And God says, it's not good for this man to be alone. So what does he do? He puts Adam to sleep and he has this you know, divine surgery where he takes out Adam's rib and from Adam's rib, he creates Eve, he creates woman. And Adam wakes up from this surgery and he sees Eve standing there naked and he bursts out into poetry, right? This is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man like you're mine. This is the one. And what's so beautiful about Genesis chapter two is Adam and Eve are created. And what's so interesting about this is you've got man and woman together in complete, perfect harmony with one another. You've got creation in perfect harmony. You've got perfect creation, perfect humans with a perfect God, and all of it is working in perfect harmony with one another to the point where Genesis two ends with the man and the woman were both naked and they felt zero shame. And we can't even comprehend what that would be like. We just can't. We've known shame since we were born. But you've got perfect humanity, zero shame. And what's so interesting is the very next verse, remember chapter numbers and verse headings and those things were added in like the 1300s. Chapter two ends with everything's perfect. Chapter three opens, the very next verse says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field or that was in the garden. Just as things get perfect, here comes the serpent. And what happens? The serpent comes in and he tempts Adam and Eve and says, did God really say, right? Remember when God created you and he gave you one command, it was to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, right? Enjoy my creation, enjoy one another, enjoy me. The children's Bible says, be, you know, eat and have babies, right? Like two of humanity's favorite things to do in all of the earth was Adam and Eve's only command, eat and have babies, fill the earth, subdue it, enjoy it. And the serpent comes along and says, did God really say not to eat that one fruit from that one tree of the knowledge of good and evil where God promised you, you would surely die? Did God really say that? He didn't, surely he didn't say that. God doesn't want to keep things from you. And he says, in fact, if you eat this, you'll be like God, tempting us and preying on our ego and our desire to exalt ourselves and glorify ourselves. And goes to Adam and Eve and they disobey God's one rule. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Adam and Eve eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in Genesis 3, we have the fall. Genesis 3 is where everything you hate about the world, if Genesis 1 is everything you love about the world coming into existence, Genesis 3 is everything that you and I hate about this world. 
came into existence in that very moment. Sin and death and decay and lying and bitterness and lust and murder, genocide, racism, you name it, it all entered the world in that moment. Shame, Adam and Eve, what's their response? They hide from the Lord. Sin instantly affects our intimacy with God. They run and they hide. They cover themselves because of their shame. But in Genesis chapter three, God does something incredible. And if you want to know one of the most important verses in all of the Bible, it is Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15 is probably the most important verse in the Old Testament. Why? Because it is the thread that the entire Bible runs through. This is the story of the Bible. Genesis 3.15 lays out the thread, and I wanna read it to you. This is what it says. God makes a promise, and he says this, and I will make enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. And what's so significant about that? God, that as soon as the world falls apart, God makes humanity a promise that I'm going to send a descendant of this woman. And he's talking to the serpent in Genesis 3.15 and he's going to crush your head, right? Woman, serpent, woman's offspring, serpent's offspring. He, the offspring of the woman, will crush your serpent's head, and you will strike his heel. That God makes a promise in Genesis 3.15. Theologians call this the proto-euangelion. Proto just means first. Euangelion means gospel. This is the first time the gospel is presented in the Bible, that God would send us a, a descendant, from the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. As soon as the world falls apart, God says, I have a plan to redeem. And it's gonna be through the descendant of the woman. And what's so interesting, the first time something dies in the scriptures, it's in Genesis three, it's the death of a substitute. What happens? God comes to Adam and Eve, ashamed in their sin, and he kills an animal and puts the skin of the animal on Adam and Eve to clothe them. And all the way back in Genesis 3.15, we see the death of a substitute. God promises that a descendant of the woman, if you want to know what is the Bible doing, what's the story of the Old Testament, it's Genesis 3.15. It is tracing the seed of the woman. And it starts in Genesis 4 with the family, right? Adam and Eve, they have children. They have Cain and they have Abel. And sin has now entered the world and we see sin in all of its fullness, right? First family, Mom, dad, two boys, and one of the sons kills the other son. We're off to a great start, aren't we? And what happens? At the end of Genesis 4, God in his grace allows Adam and Eve to have another son because he's not going to continue this lineage through Cain. They have a son named Seth. And that's how Genesis 4 ends. And in Genesis 5, some of your favorite reading, Moses breaks out into genealogies. And what does he do? He traces the lineage from Seth all the way down to Noah. Now, why is he doing that? Is it to bore you? Is it to make you fall asleep? No, what is he doing? He is tracing the seed of the woman, that there would be a descendant from this woman, from this very person, not just humanity in general, from Adam and Eve. There would one day be a descendant who would come to crush the head of the serpent. So he traces the seed of the woman from Adam and Eve to Seth all the way down to Noah. And you get to Genesis chapter six, and what's happening here is what I love about Genesis five, you probably skip the genealogies when you're reading, but it, it, it goes way out of its way to say, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died, showing us that sin is running rampant on the earth, that death has reigned because of our sin. Genesis 6 opens with Moses writing, and he says um, that essentially the thoughts of man's hearts were evil continually, that the world had grown so corrupt, so evil, that as the generations went down and the, the people multiplied, sin multiplied with it. So what happens? God even says in Genesis 6 that he regrets making humanity because their sin was so wicked and so bad. So what does he decide to do? He says, I'm going to send a flood to purge the earth. But in God's grace, who does he save? A descendant of the woman. Why? Why would God choose to save Noah and his family? Because he made them a promise. 
that he would send a seed of this woman who would crush the head of the serpent. So out of all the families of the earth, God picks Noah, who's a descendant of Adam and Eve, and says, I'm gonna save you in my grace. My wrath is coming on sin on this earth, but in my grace, I'm gonna save humanity. Showing us a picture of the wrath of God and the mercy of God. God's justice and his mercy and grace. All the way back in Genesis chapter six. In Genesis chapter six through nine is the flood narrative. You can read that. Um, But the flood narrative ends with God making this covenant with Noah. So you got Genesis 9. He makes this covenant with Noah through the rainbow that God will never flood the earth again. Genesis chapter 9 is this promise, this covenant. And here's what's so interesting about Genesis 9. What does God say to Noah? He says, be fruitful and multiply. Harking back to Genesis 1. Fill the earth and subdue it. Like, here we go again. Let's, we scrapped everything. Let's try again. And we don't get a few generations down the line. Noah doesn't die before he is getting drunk and sinning and corrupt. And it shows us that God, I mean, he wipes out the earth and sin is still running rampant, showing us that the problem is not out there. If you're in here this morning and you're wondering, oh yeah, there's so many problems out there. The real problem is in here. God wipes out the earth And sin still finds a way to reign because the sin is in us. It's in our nature. So Genesis 9 ends with this beautiful promise. Genesis 10, what happens? Moses starts tracing the the descendants of Noah. Noah's three sons. It starts tracing the seeds of of, of Noah. Why? He is carefully showing us and tracing the descendants of the woman. Genesis chapter 11, people get so prideful and arrogant and sinful and wicked that they decide, hey, let's build a tower to the heavens and it will be like God. All the way back, same problem that happened in Genesis 3. Hey, if you eat this, God doesn't want you to eat it because you'll be like him. Here we go again. We haven't learned. Let's build a tower. We'll make a name for ourselves. We'll be like God. And what does God do in Genesis chapter 11? He smacks that tower down He scatters the people across the earth. He confuses their languages. And this is where we get the nations from. God and his judgment, scattering the people across the earth and mixing up their languages. Now you've got people in Canaan, people in Egypt, people all over the world speaking different languages. And then Genesis chapter 11 ends with Moses tracing the lineage, a genealogy from Noah's sons all the way down to a guy named Abram. Now, what is Moses doing? He's tracing the seed of the woman. This is the thread that runs through the entire scriptures. And in Genesis chapter 12, God appears to a man named Abram and he makes him a promise. I wanna read it to you. He establishes his covenant with Abram and he says this. It'll be on the screen, Genesis 12. He says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. So God appears to Abram and God reveals his plan to bless the earth, to crush the head of the serpent. And what's the plan? How would you protect a a seed, a lineage, a family tree? God says, I'm gonna turn you into a nation so that you can defend yourselves from all these other nations, so that you can learn how to love one another and help one another and serve one another and protect one another. This was God's plan. If I've got to protect this seed that's being passed through the generations, how do you do it? You make them into a nation and God will rule this nation. They will be his people. He will be their God. This is how he's going to do it. And in Genesis chapter 17, God changes Abram's name to Abraham. And I'll read it to you so you can see it. It says this in Genesis 17, no longer will you be called Abram, your name will be Abraham, for I've made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful, I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and to your descendants after you, and I will be their God. So God appears to this man named Abram, who wasn't just any man. He was a descendant of Adam and Eve and Seth 
And all the way down through Noah, here we are to Abram. And he says, I'm gonna make you into a nation and here's my covenant with you. It's an everlasting covenant. I'm gonna be your God. You're gonna have descendants. He was saying this to a man who had no children, had his wife, Sarai. You're gonna have descendants and through your descendants, there will come kings. You will have a specific land. He names the land. You will live in Canaan. You're currently there now, but you're a foreigner. I'm gonna give you this land that you're standing on. There's gonna, kings are gonna come from you and you're gonna be my people. This is my everlasting covenant with you. Now, Abraham has, and we're gonna start really flying over for a second. Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. And Jacob has 12 sons. Now, where in the world did we get the, the name of the nation of Israel? Well, Jacob has 12 sons and each of Jacob's 12 sons will go on. Their lineages will be the 12 tribes of Israel. They all stem from this family right here. But Jacob has 12 sons and all of them eventually become the 12 tribes of Israel. And in Genesis chapter 35, God changes Jacob's name to Israel. And this is where we get the nation from. I'll read it to you. He says, God said to him, your name is Jacob, but you will no longer be called Jacob. Your name will be Israel. So he named him Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and increase in number and a nation and a community of nations will come from you and kings will be among your descendants. The land I gave to Abraham and to Isaac, I also give to you and I will give this land to your descendants after you. So you've got these three guys who are kind of like the forerunners or you've probably heard the term patriarch or the fathers of the faith. And these forerunners, these beginners of this nation of Israel, here we go. 12 sons, right? We go from Abraham having two sons to Isaac to Jacob having 12. We're starting to look a little more like a nation, right? Family of 12. We've got some big families in our church and y'all look like little independent nations running around here. But we're starting to look like a nation. 12 sons. And here's what happens. You know the story. The second to last son of Jacob was Joseph. And Joseph, as he grows up, he starts having these dreams and he starts telling his brothers, hey, I'm having these dreams that you guys are gonna bow down and worship me one day. And they're like, yeah, right. <laughs> and what do they do? They start talking amongst each other and say, hey, let's kill him. He deserves to die. And then one of the brothers gets a bright idea and says, no, like, let's make some money off of him. And they sell him into slavery. And you've got these Midianites in Genesis 37. They come by, they take Joseph and they take him to Potiphar in Egypt. And what happens in Egypt? Joseph is being blessed by the Lord. God's hand is on him. His favor is on him to protect him. Joseph starts gaining fame and attention and Potiphar's wife starts to notice Joseph, how awesome he is, and tries to sleep with him. And Joseph won't. So what happens? She frames him, sets him up, and Joseph gets thrown in prison. But the hand of God, the favor of God, the goodness of God stays on Joseph. And Joseph as he did way back when as a child, starts interpreting more dreams. And people in the prison start to notice prison guards are you know, getting their dreams interpreted by Joseph. And the king hears about this and he's like, hey, I've got some dreams that I'm confused about. And Joseph shows up, he interprets the king's dreams and he tells the king that, hey, based on your dream, there's gonna be seven years of beautiful, bountiful harvest in Israel. And then there's gonna be or in Egypt, and then there's gonna be seven years of famine. So based on your dream, we've got seven years of good harvest and then seven years of nothing. So you better start preparing as the king, you better start preparing for all this harvest. You better start storing up the grain, not just for Egypt, but for all the nations. And sure enough, it happens. There's seven years of great harvest and there's seven years of famine. And because of this, the ruler of Egypt raises up Joseph to be second in command of Egypt. Hey, you're gonna, be, you're gonna lead everything except for the throne, you're in charge. And Joseph is second in command in Egypt and when the famine happens, guess who has to come to Egypt to find grain? His brothers and his dad, Jacob and his 11 brothers show up to Egypt looking for grain and in Genesis 45, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. And in Genesis 50, we have this beautiful statement, Genesis 50, 20, where Joseph looks at his brothers and he says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. 
And yes, you intended to bring evil on me, but God used that to preserve this seed of the woman from famine. And here they come into Egypt. Joseph not only gives them grain, but he gives them a land to dwell in. So now you've got Jacob and his family. They move in um, just inside Egypt in this land. And before Jacob dies in Genesis 49, he blesses his sons. And we won't read through all the 12 of them, but he looks at Judah and he says, Judah, you're a lion's cub and the king's scepter will not depart from your lineage. There will be a lion and a king who would come from Judah. And the king's scepter will never depart from his lineage. And Jacob dies. So you've got the end of this story, the end of the book of Genesis, where the nation of Israel is inside Egypt and they start to multiply. Exodus opens with the the Israelites multiplying and multiplying and multiplying to the point where Pharaoh is like, this is not good. If these people declare war, we're done for. Like there's millions and millions and millions of these people. If they decide just to fight us one day, we're done. So what does he do? He puts them all in captivity. He puts them in slavery. And for 400 years, the Israelites are enslaved in Egypt until Exodus chapter three, what happens? God raises up a man named Moses. And in Exodus chapter three, God raises up Moses. And where does he find Moses? I find it so interesting that God finds Moses out in the wilderness tending the sheep. And he calls Moses and he says, hey, you're gonna set my people free. You're gonna come in Egypt and redeem my people. And Moses is like, "I I don't speak well. I don't know what's going on. And God appears to him in a burning bush. He gives him a rod. He says, I'm gonna be with you. And he's like, well, who do I tell them is making me do all this? And he says, tell them Yahweh is sending you. The I am is sending you. And he gets Aaron and he raises up Aaron to help Moses and to speak on behalf of Moses. And Exodus 7 through 12 are the 10 plagues of Israel in Egypt. And you see the 10 plagues come through. You see the locusts and the gnats and the water turned to blood and the boils on the skin and all of just miserable things happening in Egypt to the point where Exodus chapter 11 and 12 is the last plague. It's the 10th plague. It's the Passover plague, where God sends the scripture, and ESV says the destroyer will come. You've probably heard the angel of death will come, that God in his judgment over sin and his efforts to redeem his people and save his people, he's going to kill the firstborn son of anyone in Egypt, Egyptian, Israelite, cattle, you name it, of anybody, unless they put the blood of a spotless lamb on their doorpost. They take God at his word, they sacrifice a lamb, and they put the blood of the lamb on their doorpost. Then death will pass over them. And Moses tells this to Pharaoh, he tells this to the people, and the people, the Israelites especially, heed God's word, and this happens. You can read about it in Exodus 12. Death comes in, the destroyer comes in, and passes over all of the homes that are covered by the blood of the lamb. Pharaoh's firstborn son dies Lots of firstborns in Egypt die, humans and cattle, and there was weeping and crying out in the night, that night in Egypt, to the point where Pharaoh says, all right, you're gone. I'm letting you go. Get out of here. Can't do this anymore. So Moses and Aaron lead the people out of Egypt. They plunder the land, and they take their possessions with them to the point where Pharaoh gets furious. And what does he say? No, this is it. We're gonna destroy them. I'm I'm furious that this is happening. Pharaoh raises up the Egyptian army to go and chase the Israelites. They get to the Red Sea and they're like, what are we gonna do? We've got this army behind us. Moses raises his staff and God parts the Red Sea and saves his people as they walk through the sea. And then when the Egyptian army comes barreling through the sea, God shuts it on them in one moment. And in a second, God wipes out the army of the world power of the day. Strongest nation in the world, God wipes out their army in a split second. And God saves his people, he rescues his people, he takes his people out, and um, they get in Exodus chapter 19, we get to Mount Sinai, where God rescued his people, they get to Exodus 19, and what does God do? Before he gives them any rules, anything to do, he renews his covenant with his people. He tells this to them in Exodus chapter 19. He says, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. 
Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you are to speak to the Israelites. So through this, taking God at his word, through this sacrifice of the blood of the lamb, God frees his people and he renews his covenant with them. You're my treasured possession. If you just listen to me and obey me and take me at my word, I will bless you and keep you. You'll be prosperous. I'm making this covenant with you, the same covenant I made, the same promises I made in Genesis to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, I'm making to you. You're the descendants of Jacob. Same promise still applies. You are the seed of the woman and I'm gonna protect you. And then he gives them the 10 commandments in Exodus 20. So don't get the order mixed up. God saves them first and then he gives them the rules. And that's the order of the gospel. The gospel is not, you obey all these rules and then God will love you and save you. That's anti-gospel, that's religion. The good news of the gospel is God saves us out of his own kindness and his own mercy and then we change our lives and our behavior and our actions based on what he's done for us. Not so that he will save us, but because he has saved us. And this is what we see in Exodus. Exodus 20, God gives his people the law. He gives them the 10 commandments which is Exodus 20. And then the rest of the book of Exodus is somewhat boring reading because it's the instructions for the Israelites on how to build the tabernacle. God is not just a powerful, infinite God. He is also a personal God. He's not the force in Star Wars, right? He's a personal being where he is all powerful, but he's also all personal. And he wants to dwell with his people. So he tells them to build build a tabernacle. And here's how you're gonna build it. And here's the measurements and why. So that God can dwell with his people, his presence can be with his people and God can live amongst his people. So the rest of the book of Exodus is the people building the tabernacle. And at the end of the book of Exodus, they built this tent, this mobile kind of temple. They've built the tabernacle. They've got the Ark of the Covenant where God's presence was in the tabernacle behind the veil. They've got this mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And Exodus ends, Exodus chapter 40 ends with God's presence entering into the tabernacle, the glory of God descending down and God with his people. It's beautiful. The book of of Leviticus is where most, it's kind of the graveyard where most of your Bible reading plans in a year uh, have gone to die, right? Anybody struggle to make it out of Leviticus? Why? Because Leviticus is the 613 laws that God gives his people to how they're supposed to relate to one another and govern each other, right? All of the law can be summed up in love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. But you and I both know we need way more than that, don't we? I can tell you to love each other, but then it's like parenting, right? You can tell your siblings, hey, I need you to love your brother. But then what does that look like? That means like stop taking too long in the shower and stop sitting on them and stop taking their thing, right? Like we have to explain it very clearly what love looks like, don't we? And that's what God does for his people in the book of Leviticus. Here's how you treat one another. Here's how you love one another. Here's how you serve one another. This is how you handle um, sin and wrongdoing and things that happen. And he gives them the law. Two significant things come out of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter eight through 10, God establishes the priesthood. And I mentioned the 12 tribes of Israel. One of those tribes was the tribe of Levi. And this is why the book is called Leviticus. It's where we, it's from the word Levi. That the the tribe and the descendants of Levi, they were going to be the priests. And they were going to administer all of the laws given in Leviticus. That they would be overseers and administers of the Levitical law. So God gives them the 613 laws and he establishes the priesthood in the book of Leviticus. And then in Leviticus chapter 16, God establishes the day of atonement. Some of you may have heard this phrase before, but in Leviticus 16, God established the day of atonement. And the day of atonement is interesting because one day out of the year, the high priest of Israel would go into the tabernacle. And he would shed his clothes and often they would tie a rope around him in case he did something wrong and dropped dead and they had to like pull him out. But he would go into the Holy of Holies. He would go into the tabernacle and he would have these two goats with him. And one day out of the year, this high priest, this representative, representative of God to the people and representative of the people to God, 
would go into the Holy of Holies where the presence of God was with these two goats. And on the first goat, he would confess the sins of the people as their representative. And then he would sacrifice the goat and sprinkle the blood of the goat on the mercy seat. And on the second goat, he would confess the same sins of the same people, but this goat was actually called the scapegoat. It's where we get that term from. He would confess the sins of the people on the goat and he would shoo the goat out into the wilderness, showing that because blood was shed, our sins are cast as far as the east is from the west, never to be seen again. And God establishes this rhythm where one day out of the year, his people, a representative, would go in and shed blood for the forgiveness of their sins. And that's the book of Leviticus. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. The book of Numbers is God numbering his people for battle, right? We've set free from Egypt. We're headed to this land that God promises. So Moses numbers the troops and they get ready. In Numbers 10, we get to this place right outside of the land. We're almost there. The land that God promised. Kadesh Barnea. We're sitting there in Kadesh Barnea. We're looking over into the land. And what does Moses do? He says, oh, wow, there's people in the land right? 400 years have gone by. There's inhabitants in the land. So what does he do? He says, let's send 12 people, one from each tribe of Israel into the land. You're going to be there for 40 days and you're going to spy out the land. So he sends one person from each tribe into the land. They spy out the land for 40 days. They come back and report. And 10 of the men say, there's giants in the land. God's led us out here to die. What are we doing? We've made a huge mistake. Where did we mess up? But we can't go in there. They will destroy us. Two of the men say, we've got to go in. God's led us out here this far. He will protect us. He's made promises to us. He's protected us then. He'll protect us now. We have to take God at his word. The two men that said, let's go in, were Joshua and Caleb. But unfortunately, Moses makes a pivotal mistake, and he listens to the 10. And he says, we can't do this. And God and his righteous judgment punishes the adult generation for their disobedience. And what's their punishment? That they are going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until this entire adult, unbelieving generation dies off. And their children and the younger generation, they'll grow up 40 years later and they'll get to inherit the promised land. Notice the punishment. I'm not eliminating the seed of the woman. I'm eliminating the older generation. I'm preserving the seed. And the older generation, they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. If you want to read about people wandering and complaining, read the book of Numbers. They wander and they complain and they whine. And Moses is one of the last of the older generation to die. And Moses, knowing that he's going to die, knowing that he's going to get God's just punishment, what does he do? He writes a book. And the book is the book of Deuteronomy. And what's the book of Deuteronomy? He is pleading and begging with this younger generation to take God at his word. Listen to him, right? Deuteronomy 6, listen to his word, talk about his word when you sit and when you rise and when you lie down and when you go about the way. Do not forsake God's word. If God says it, do it. Obey him, trust him, take it to the bank. And before Moses dies, he says this in Deuteronomy 18. I'll read it to you. He says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So before Moses ends his book of Deuteronomy, he says, there's gonna be a prophet like me who's coming and he's gonna have the very words of God in his mouth. And then at the end of Deuteronomy, Moses dies and the only two adults who are allowed to enter into the promised land were the two that believed, Joshua and Caleb. Moses dies, Joshua 1, God raises up Joshua. He says, be strong and courageous. You've got nothing to fear. Every place that your foot treads will be given to you. But he says, do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. But be careful to do it. And as you enter into the land, you'll have success if you heed my word and you obey me. They do that. They move into Jericho, right? You know the story. They walk around the walls. They take God at his word. The walls fall down. They go in and they take the first city of Jericho but they don't listen to God's word. There's people in Israel that take the devoted things that they weren't supposed to take. This first battle was dedicated to the Lord, so all the possessions go to the Lord. You can have all the others, but this one's mine. You didn't knock the walls down yourself. You walked, and I knocked the walls down. This battle belongs to me. 
but they take the devoted things, they disobey the Lord. So what happens? The next battle, Ai, this tiny little town, not significant at all. Joshua doesn't pray, he doesn't seek the Lord, so therefore the Lord doesn't tell him there's disobedience in the camp, and they go and they say, let's just send a few troops, and they get wiped out. Israel loses the next battle. Joshua repents, he seeks the Lord, he deals with the sin in the camp, and then they go on to win the next 30 battles, 31 and one. And the one that they lost was because they disobeyed. And you get to Joshua 12. Joshua 12 through 22 is land distribution. So if you wanna read about land distribution in the nation of Israel, you can read that. Um, it's hard to work it through, if I'm being honest. But what is it? It's we've moved into the land, we've cleared out the land. Now here's the 12 tribes. Here's the land that this tribe gets. Here's the land that this tribe gets. Here's the land that this tribe gets. And 12 through 22 is just Joshua divvying up the, divvying up the land. Joshua 23 and 24 are Joshua's final words. We've entered the land. We've got the land divvied up. And he says, now you're, you're on your own. Choose this day who you're gonna serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the people cry out, we'll serve the Lord too. And he's like, you won't and you can't. And God gave them three rules as they moved into the land. There's, remember, there's other people in the land that they were supposed to completely wipe out. Rule number one was wipe out the people. Rule number two was because you're not gonna do rule number one, rule number two is don't intermarry with the foreigners. And rule number three was don't worship their pagan gods. And what happens? We move into the book of Judges and the people do all three. <laughs> they don't wipe out the land. They start intermarrying with all of these pagan God worshipers and they start worshiping their pagan gods. And the book of Judges is the people falling into um, bad trial and circumstances and enemies coming in. God takes his hand off the people. Why? Because they were disobedient. You're not gonna disobey me. Here goes my hand. It's off. And the people cry out to God. And if you want to read about this, you can read about it in the book of Judges. Judges chapter two, before we even get into the story, the author tells us, here's how the book's going to go. It's cyclical. The people are going to worship God and then they're going to turn from God. They're going to worship these pagan gods. I'm going to send in the Amorites, the Canaanites, all these other ites. <coughs> Excuse me. They're going to come in. They're going to overtake Israel. Israel's going to cry out for a deliverer and I'm going to raise up a judge. <coughs> and the judge Hebrew word for judge is deliverer. And God would raise up Samson and Gideon and all of these other judges to come and save the people. And if the judge was alive, the people would continue to worship God. And as soon as the judge would die, they would go back to worshiping the pagan gods. And over and over and over again, this happens in the book of Judges. Book of Judges is really dark, pretty R-rated. Some of the worst things in history happen in the book of Judges. And the reason why, all throughout the book, the author says, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. You and I, trying to play God, trying to think we know what's best, we know what's right and wrong. Some of the darkest things happen. At the end of the book of Judges, the last verse of the entire book says, in those days there was no king, and everyone did what they thought was right in their own eyes. And the last judge, his name is Samuel. And the people go to Samuel and they say, Samuel, we want a king. We want to be like all the other nations. And we want to be ruled not by judges. We want to be ruled by a king. So what happens? Samuel transitions Israel from ruled by judges and ruled by God to ruled by an earthly king. And the people say, no, no, no. We just want the office. Like, you're done. We want to pick the king. And they pick King Saul who looked big and strong in appearance, here's our king. And what happens? Saul's probably the worst king Israel has ever seen. Terrible king. And then God in 2 Samuel chapter seven <clears throat> says, or in 1 Samuel chapter eight, I believe, God says, man looks at the outward appearance, but it's God that looks at the heart. I'll pick a king for you. And who does he find? David. And where is David? Same place Moses was. Out in the fields, shepherding and tending to sheep. God says, I'm gonna pick this man who's not strong in appearance, but he fears me. I see in his heart that he fears the Lord. God picks David. So you've got Saul. Saul reigns for 40 years. He was a terrible king. So you've got Saul for 40. David rules for 40 years. And then after David was Solomon. 
So you've got Saul, David, Solomon, each of them rule for 40 years. And God makes this promise to David as he's the next king. And he says this in 2 Samuel 7, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up for your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish his throne of his kingdom forever. So God tells David, there's gonna be an offspring that comes after you from your body and his kingdom will reign forever. And this had a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. The near fulfillment is you're gonna have a son and he's gonna build me a house. And Solomon comes, rules for 40 years, and under Solomon's reign, the temple in Israel is built. So David literally had a son who built him a house. The far fulfillment is that David would have another descendant and his kingdom would reign forever and he would build a different kind of house. But David rules for 40 years. He has Solomon. Solomon rules for 40 years. He writes Ecclesiastes and Proverbs and Song of Solomon, these incredible wisdom books. And then after Solomon, his son Rehoboam was the next king. And Rehoboam made a pivotal mistake. Rehoboam enters, you've got like 80 years of great kings behind you and you're the next king and Rehoboam has a choice. Students, this is a, a sermon for you. He's got some older, wiser advisors telling him, hey, I think it's time right now. We've got all this established. We've got the temple. I think it's time to loosen up on the reins. And then he's got his younger buddies saying, no, 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 no. We need you to tighten up the reins. So he can listen to the older, wiser men or he can listen to his friends. And unfortunately, Rehoboam listens to his friends. And he says, you think the last kings were strict? I'll show you strict. And Rehoboam tightens up the reins. He listens to his buddies and the kingdom of Israel splits in two. The people revolt and the kingdom is divided. And here's what happens. You've got the kingdom of Israel. You've got 10 tribes in the north and they are Israel. And two of the 12 tribes go to the south. They retain the name Israel. The two tribes in the south become Judah. So now you've got this split kingdom of Israel. Israel in the north, Judah in the south. And what happens? God is raising up these prophets to tell the people, you've got to repent. You've got to repent. Judgment is coming. Wrath is coming. You have to repent. Turn back to God. Stop trying to be your own king. Stop trying to go your own way. Turn back to God and repent. And the people do not repent. They don't. And God promises them that, hey, something's going to happen. There will be an exile. But God raises up these different prophets. And this is what you read in the Old Testament. You read about Jonah. You read about Haggai. You read about Jeremiah. What are they doing? They're proclaiming to the people, turn back. Jeremiah 2, you've committed two evils. You've forsaken God, the fountain of living water. And you've turned to these man-made gods, these cisterns. Turn back to God. And if you don't, God will bring his righteous judgment on us. Second Kings 17, here's what happens. Assyria comes in and they take the northern kingdom into captivity. And God says in 2 Kings 17, it's because of your sin, I'm doing this. God allows the Assyrians to come in. They take out the northern tribe of Israel. And the sad news is the northern tribe of Israel would never come back. God would burn out their light. And they would be no more. They're taken from their home, they're taken into captivity, and there they go, and they're never to return again. You would think Israel would learn, the southern tribe of Judah would learn, and in 2 Kings 25, once again, God says, because of their sin, who has come now? Babylon. Overtaken Assyria, they come in, and they take the southern tribe of Judah into exile. And you've got prophets in the exile while they're in Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel. You can read about this in the Old Testament. Bow down and worship these pagan gods. And you've got these prophets prophesying. Jeremiah is one of them. Isaiah is one of them. That God will do something. He will intervene. He will save this lineage. He will save this tribe. But they are taken into exile. Now what happens? Babylon is overtaken by it should be a P, by Persia. Persia becomes the world power of the day. They overtake Babylon. So you've got all of God's people, this lineage that he promised to protect in Persia. 
And Ezra chapter one opens with God softening the heart of King Cyrus of Persia to let his people go back to Israel. So God raises up Ezra. Ezra writes first and second Chronicles telling this generation that was in captivity in Babylon for 70 years. Hey, here's who our God is. He starts recounting all the old stories about David and um, Saul and Solomon. And all That's why you read those stories twice in the Old Testament because it's Ezra telling the, this generation that grew up in captivity, this is who our God is and this is what he's done. And he lets some of the people go. They start to rebuild the temple they get delayed for about 16 years and then they rebuild the temple in four years. God raises up prophets like Haggai and others to encourage the pe people to continue. Some kings of Persia come, go by, come and die. And then God raises up a new king of Persia and he's ready to destroy the people. And what does God do in his goodness and his kindness? He raises up a young Jewish girl named Esther and she's going to plead to the king on behalf of the people, that God would save his people and pardon the Israelites. And God uses the boldness of this young Jewish girl named Esther to save the people. And the king allows more waves of Israelites to go back to Israel. God raises up this man named Nehemiah. Nehemiah is in charge of rebuilding the temple wall and they rebuild it in 52 days. And the Old Testament ends with God's people back in the promised land, and things are not as good as it used to be because of their sin. Scripture says the temple was rebuilt and the people that saw the first one wept that the glory of the first temple was not there anymore. The, the walls are rebuilt. You've got God's people back in the land, in the temple with the walls built, and that's how the Old Testament ends. And God goes silent for 400 years. 400 years of silence after the Old Testament. Before the Old, between the Old Testament and the New Testament is 400 years of silence. And we think that God's doing nothing. But what is God doing? In those 400 years, what happens? Somebody comes over and overtakes Persia, and it's Greece. You've got Alexander the Great. You've got the Hellenistic period. What happens in the Hellenistic period? Class. Alexander the Great and the Greeks, they established a common language, common economics, common culture, a universal language where we can all communicate. And then after Greece, they get overtaken by Rome. Julius Caesar, all those great conquerors of Rome, they come in and what does Rome establish? All roads lead to where? To Rome. So you think 400 years, nothing's happening. God is establishing a common language, a common culture, a common economics, and roads, so a language that the gospel can go forth, and roads to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And Paul says in Galatians 4, he says this, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. What does he mean? When the fullness of time had come, God is showing us that all throughout this lineage, he is protecting this seed, that you and I, we can't be our own God, we can't be our own king, we can't obey the law. All throughout the scriptures, the law wasn't supposed to, to save us. It was supposed to show us that we need somebody to do all this for us. We need a better prophet and a better judge and a better king and a better lawkeeper because you and I, we can't be our own God, our own king, our own prophet, our own lawkeeper. You can't save yourself. You can never be good enough to do it. And the entire story is God setting the scene to show us that we can't do it. And the problem was never God's offices. The problem was in us. The problem was our sin. The problem was the kings were flawed and we didn't obey the kings and the kings didn't obey God. The prophets were flawed. The patriarchs were flawed. The problem was in us. And when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Now, why in the world do you think Matthew opens up his gospel with a genealogy? Where does he go? He goes from this carpenter, from Nazareth, Jesus, back to David and back to Abraham. Luke chapter three, Luke goes from Jesus all the way back. He traces the seed all the way back to Adam and Eve. Why? Because God had sent his son and he would be a greater prophet, a greater king, a greater 
covenant mediator, a greater law keeper. He would be the fulfillment of this promise. God had come through on his promise to send the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. And then we killed him. He claimed to be a prophet. He claimed to be a judge. He claimed to be the father. I and the father are one. He claimed to be all of those things. And we killed him. And none of this matters this morning. None of what we're doing matters if Jesus is dead. Paul says, let's eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die, right? Our faith is worthless, but he rose from the dead, proving that he is the true and better version of all of these things, that he's the better king who would reign and rule over his people. He's the greater prophet who would speak the words of God. He's the greater law keeper who would fully obey and fulfill the Old Testament standard for us. He is the greater one. He's the one who's done for us what we could not do for ourselves. I wanna read these three through the Old Testament. He's the better prophet, Luke 7. And they began glorifying God and saying, a great prophet has risen among us and God has visited his people. He's the greater temple. Matthew 12, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. He's the greater king, 1 Timothy 6, which he will display at the proper time. He is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the better judge, Acts 10. He ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. He's the greater high priest, Since then, Hebrews 4, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let's hold fast to our confession. He's the greater law keeper. He kept God's law perfectly. 1 John 3, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. He's the greater sacrifice. John 1, the next day, um, he saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the greater Lamb. He's the greater Father. John 10, I am the Father of one. He's a greater covenant mediator. Hebrews 8, Christ obtained a better ministry that is more excellent than the old covenant. As the old covenant, or as the new covenant, he mediates is better since it's enacted on better promises. And he is the promised one of the Old Testament. Genesis 3, or Galatians 3. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ? that Jesus Christ is the promised seed of the woman. And we know that because he rose again. He's the prophet, he's the king, he's the judge, he's the ruler, he's the shepherd that we've all been waiting for. This is the one. Have any of you in here ever seen the Avengers movies before? You can raise your hand, it's okay, yeah. Harris says, I know you have. Um, Joss Whedon is the director of the first two Avengers movies. Um, He also did Justice League, so, you know, yikes. Um, But uh, he's the director of the first two Avengers, and he's a self-proclaimed atheist, and uh, he was asked in an interview by Entertainment Weekly uh, a couple years ago um, what he believes, why he's an atheist, why he doesn't believe in God, and notice the irony of what he says. I wanna read it to you. He says this, somebody once asked me if I have anything like faith, and I said, I have faith in the narrative. I have a belief in a narrative that is bigger than me, that is alive, and I trust will work itself out. So close, yet so far. And I want to sit down with Joss Whedon and just go, there is a narrative that's bigger than you, and it is alive, and it will work itself out. And it's a narrative about Jesus. All of life is about this one man. And none of it matters except for the fact that he rose from the dead. If he didn't rise, none of it matters. But because he rose, everything changes. It's worthy of our lives. It's worthy of our worship. It's worthy of everything we can offer. Our king has come and salvation is free to all who would receive him and call on his name. Confess with his mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved because he has fulfilled the Old Testament for you so that you and I can experience the benefit of the new covenant of grace and mercy through Christ. It's the story. We love it. Lord of the Rings. Why do we write stories like this? where this humble king would take his rightful place on the throne and then you've got these common hobbits, these men who have this temptation and they're trying to journey to destroy it, but all the while it's tempting them. Where do we get these ideas? You know what Tolkien said? Jesus, Black Panther. How did we come up with the plot of the movie where the son of the true king would die and come back to life and take his rightful place as king? Where do you think we got it from? 
Harry Potter. How does little Harry, who's the chosen one according to the prophecies, how does he defeat evil? He takes it within himself and he dies with it and he comes back to life. They asked J.K. Rowling, hey, where'd you come up with that incredible plot? You know what she said? Surprise, Jesus. Why do we draw, why are we drawn to and love these stories? Because it's the story that beats deep within us. That we all know someone has to come and do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And church, that king has come. And his name is Jesus. And he's worthy of our lives. So let's worship him. I'm gonna pray and the band's gonna come up and let's celebrate that. And if you don't have a relationship with this Jesus, if you don't know him, do not leave here today without talking to someone about the person and work of Jesus. We would be honored to give up the rest of our Easter afternoon to share the gospel with you and tell you who this Jesus is. But for the rest of us, all of us, he's the only name worthy of our mouths, worthy of our worship, worthy of our lives. So let's pray and then let's stand and let's worship him for what he's done because our king has come. God has come through on his promise. He's done for us what we could not do for ourselves. Lord, we love you. God, we thank you for your word. God, I pray that as we end this Easter Sunday service, that this would just be an anthem of praise to you. Father, for what you've done, that the gospel is not clean yourself up, be your own king, be your own prophet, get things right, and then you will love us. God, the gospel is you stepped out of heaven and you did for us what we could never do for ourselves. You're the king we need. You're the judge we need. You're the father we need. So God, help us to run to you with empty hands. God, if we run to you with anything in our hands, we still don't get it. The gospel is you've done for us what we could not do for ourselves. So God, we lift our empty hands and we worship you for what you've done. In Christ's name, amen.